0: Well, welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Diane Fenner from the New York City Bar Association. And it is my great honor to introduce to you today, Christopher Lynn Hedges. We are going to have a conversation on a variety of topics. First, I would like just to make three brief announcements, thanking the sponsoring individuals and giving some information about the New York City Bar upcoming events and then I will give a more detailed introduction about Chris Hedges and then he will have some time to talk and answer your questions at the end of that. Um, This speech or lecture or talk is part of our 150th anniversary celebration. New York City Bar Association has been 150 years In existence and the sponsors for today's events include our task force on the rule of law, our business and human rights working group, our international human rights committee and the senior lawyers committee and just briefly I want to mention three of our upcoming events in this our 150th anniversary year on Monday May 17th we are having a candidate forum with the candidates for Manhattan District Attorney which will include discussion of the mass incarceration crisis how to address it decriminalization including increasing options for diversion and alternatives to incorp- uh, to incarceration our event on May Seven. I'm sorry. May 20th uh, is about the Senate filibuster, um, and the speakers will include Russell Feingold, Sarah Binder, and Norman J. Ornstein. And on June 24th, the Senior Lawyers Committee and others will sponsor an event entitled "Tax the Rich," which is based on a book by that title from the patriotic millionaires a group of high net worth americans leaders in business and investing agencies who are united in their concern about the destabilizing concentration of wealth so that's june 24th the event tax the rich so if you were registered and you're here now you already know something about chris hedges You've already seen on the registration form that he is a uh, best-selling author, a Pulitzer Prize winner, a TV commentator, um, the recipient of the Amnesty International Global Award for Human Rights Journalism. Uh, um, And I will briefly go over some of the things that were left out of that introduction before I give you Christopher Lynn Hedges. Um, In addition to the books that were mentioned there, he spent nearly two decades as a foreign correspondent in Central America, West Asia, Africa, the Middle East, uh, and the Balkans, and has reported from more than 50 countries. Um, He was a foreign correspondent for 15 years in the Middle East and Balkan Bureau chief. And covered the war in the former Yugoslavia. Uh, he has taught at Columbia University, New York University, the University of Toronto, and Princeton. He currently teaches in the New Jersey prison system. Um, and that is as part of the Rutgers University BA program. He, uh, during his time in Latin America, Uh, When he began his career as a freelance journalist, he wrote for the Washington Post, covered the Falkland War from Buenos Aires for National Public Radio, covered the conflicts in El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Guatemala for the Christian Science Monitor and for NPR, and worked as the Central America Bureau Chief for the Dallas Morning News in 1984 Um, He took a sabbatical to study Arabic in 1988 and then was appointed the Middle East Bureau Chief for the Dallas Morning News in 1989. And in one of his first stories for that paper, he tracked down Robert Manning, the prime suspect in the 1985 bombing death in California of the head of the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee's Western office. He located him in a Jewish settlement in Israeli-occupied West Bank, and until uh, Chris Hedges discovered Manning, it uh, was said by Israel that they had no knowledge of his whereabouts, and Manning was extradited to the U.S. in in 1991, where he is serving a life sentence. Another couple of exciting moments I just want to flag for you before we start Chris was, uh, covered the first Gulf War for the New York Times in 1990, entered Kuwait with the U.S. Marine Corps and was taken prisoner in Basra after the war by the Iraqi Republican Guard during the Shiite uprising and was held captive for a week. Um, he was appointed the New York Times Middle East Bureau Chief in 1991 and during his reporting on the atrocities committed by Saddam Hussein, uh, that Iraqi leader offered a bounty for anyone who killed him, killed Chris, uh, and other several aid workers and journalists, um, and among them were reporters who were assassinated as well as wounded. In 1995, Edges was named the Balkan bureau chief for the New York Times, based in Sarajevo when the city was being hit by over 300 shells a day from the surrounding Bosnia Serbs. Uh, He reported on the Serbian massacre in Srebrenica and shortly after the war, uncovered what appeared to be one of the central hiding places for perhaps thousands of corpses. And he, with a photographer, were the first to travel in Kosovo and later published an investigative piece in the New York Times, Detailing how the former leader of the Kosovo Liberation Army directed a campaign in which many leaders were assassinated and brutally purged. Um, in uh, 1998 to 99, he was a Neiman Fellow at Harvard. Uh, his list of accomplishments is too long for me to take up any more time here. I give you Mr. Christopher Lynn Hedges.
1: Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. Um, I am quite beholden to uh, two people in particular for my understanding of the corporate coup d'etat that's taken place in the United States, to quote the Canadian philosopher John Ralston Saul, uh, who re- did a good book on this process called Voltaire's Bastards. Um, uh, but in particular, I lean on the great political theorist Sheldon Wolin uh, taught at Berkeley, later at Princeton, and his last book, Democracy Incorporated, and then Ralph Nader. Ralph uh, has been fighting corporate power longer, and I would argue with more integrity than probably any other American. Uh, I had been overseas for 20 years as a foreign correspondent. In many ways, I had to rediscover my own country when I returned. And uh, Ralph was instrumental in laying out to me the shifting political sands in the American system that had given rise to a new entity, a kind of corporate duopoly. Uh, I think we see how this duopoly works right now uh, in response to the Israeli attacks against Palestinians. There's no difference in the kind of statements that are made by Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or, uh, Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden or anyone else. Um, that on foreign policy issues and economic issues, they work in lockstep. That's not to say that there are not differences between the Republicans and the Democrats. There are, uh, but they're not significant differences. Um, and this process really, if you, if you have a starting date for it, it's probably 1971 that was when Lewis Powell, who was the counsel for the Chamber of Commerce, wrote up this now infamous Powell memo uh, to cope with what the political scientist Samuel Huntington called America's excess of democracy. Uh, and Powell uh, railed against uh, what he called anti-business interests uh, that had uh, risen within the academy. Uh, within the media. Uh, he pointed to uh, the widespread mass movements that had been formed in the 1960s, not just the anti-war movement, but the women's movement, the environmental movement. Ralph Nader, in fact, organized the first Earth Day. Uh, and then you had uh, the rise of militant movements within the African community, commun- not only the uh, civil rights movement, but uh, ultimately groups like the Black Panthers, you had the American Indian movement, you had the Young Lords representing, uh, in particular, uh, Latinos or Puerto Ricans. Um, uh, there was just a a, a a breakdown of the hegemony of power that had traditionally been held by a narrow, largely white male ruling elite and uh so Powell laid out a blueprint uh that essentially was followed and it, it it uh called on the business interests in corporate America to use its significant financial resources uh to uh essentially buy off institutions, the press, academia, uh to marginalize uh anti-capitalist critics. Remember, if you went back to the sixties or the early seventies. You could watch uh, major American intellectuals and dissidents from Malcolm X to Howard Zinn, uh, Gore Vidal, Noam Chomsky. Uh, All of these people were given space on public television, something that doesn't happen anymore at all, Uh, in large part because public television's budget uh, was reduced, uh, the, the government infusion of money, and it's so reliant on corporate donors. One of the biggest donors was the Koch brothers for many years. Uh, that it essentially neutralized uh, those critics of corporate capitalism and imperialism. Uh, and then you saw a kind of legislative assault, the use of uh, money to freeze out uh, liberal Democrats. Ralph <coughs> had um, authored uh, about 24 pieces of major consumer and environmental legislation, including the Mine and Safety Act, the Clean Water Act, a, that whole list. Uh and but then he used the liberal wing of the Democratic Party to push those pieces of legislation through the Congress. And uh slowly the corporate elites, uh especially by corrupting the political system so that it became almost impossible to win a Senate or a House seat without massive financial backing, uh it, it pushed those people out. Uh and that gave rise to uh this kind of new faux liberalism embodied in uh, a figure like Bill Clinton uh, and also embodied in the UK in a figure like Tony Blair. Uh, Margaret Thatcher famously quipped that her greatest creation was Tony Blair. Uh, well, in many ways, Reagan and the business elite's greatest creation was Bill Clinton. Uh, so uh, Clinton uh, and Biden was uh, very instrumental in this, uh, decided that they would uh, essentially transform the Democratic Party into the Republican Party. Tony Quello, a Congressman from California was instrumental in doing this. Uh, so they would uh, embrace issues that the corporate America wanted embraced, uh, that the military industrial complex wanted embraced uh, and they would get corporate money. That was the plan and it worked. So by the 1990s, there was uh corporate parity in terms of fundraising between the Republican and the Democratic parties. Uh, but the assault was devastating. Um, it, w- it was certainly preceded Clinton, but Clinton really turbocharged it. So what you had was uh, that uh, self-identified liberal elite. I write at length about this in my book, Death of the Liberal Class, that uh, uh, spoke in that kind of traditional feel your pain language of the American working class and the poor, uh, but assiduously served corporate power. Uh, so it's under Clinton that you get the passage of NAFTA. Again, Biden was instrumental in this when he was in the Senate. Uh, the, probably the greatest betrayal of the working class since the Taft, 1947 Taft-Hartley Act, which makes it very difficult to organize uh, unions, uh, and in particular strike. Uh, you had uh, Clinton overseeing the destruction of the welfare system, uh, and uh, in the old welfare system, um, 70% of the recipients were children. Uh, you deregulate the FCC. That's not a small move because it essentially allowed about a half dozen corporations to seize control of the airwaves. Uh, and those half dozen corporations are able to uh, control what about 90% of Americans listen to or watch. Um, you had um, the destruction of the 1933 Glass-Steagall Act, uh, which set up a firewall between investment and commercial banks, precipitating the global financial meltdown and the banking crisis. Canada did not have a banking crisis in 2008 uh, because Chrétien, who had uh, in Canada essentially put into place his own version of Glass-Steagall, that was not revoked. Uh, it was uh, Clinton and Biden, again, uh, who uh, in the 1994 omnibus crime bill uh, uh, militarized the police, uh, tripled and quadrupled uh, sentences, including for nonviolent drug offenses, that's where you get the three strikes, you're outlaw, uh, and uh, explode the prison population, uh, more than doubling it. Uh, we now have about 22 or 25 percent of the world's prison population, where about four 4.4% of the world's population, and close to 50% of the people in our prison population, most of whom are of color and poor, uh, have never been charged with a violent crime. They've never been charged with physically harming another person. Um, uh, and and then, of course, it uh, this uh, process essentially contributed to the deindustrialization of the country uh, thrusting the working class uh into profound economic despair. So in urbanized centers uh, where there once was uh some kind of industrial work, uh you've left largely communities of color. Uh and the two forms of social control are the police, militarized police, uh that you know function as de facto armies of occupation, and of course the uh prison system itself. Um, we hear more from the dispossessed and disenfranchised white working class, those people who supported Trump. Um, uh, and I think that's because the draconian forms of social control uh have been, not been as effective uh against the white working class. That's number one. And number two, uh James Baldwin writes about this, there is always uh a feeling if you're a white American uh that uh, the American dream as a possibility. Baldwin actually writes about how, uh, African Americans uh, don't have the same kind of midlife crisis that white, in particular white male Americans have, because they never believed that they always knew that that dream was a fiction. Um, and I think that's why, uh, you have, uh, perhaps, uh, or most of the suicides, uh, that are uh, carried out in the United States are carried out by middle-aged white men, men in their 40s and 50s, who've realized that they've been discarded, that 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 American myth, that American dream is a lie. Now, the consequences of this reconfiguration of wealth and the dispossession of the American working class are social, cultural, political, and psychological. In my last book, uh, America, the Farewell Tour, uh, I started as kind of my foundation with Emile Durkheim, the great French sociologist. Uh, Durkheim had uh, explored uh, suicide. This was a book he wrote, I think it was 1898. Um, but he, he asked the question, what is it that drives individuals and societies to carry out either uh, singular or collective acts of self-annihilation? Um, and he targeted, uh, uh, this is where you get the term anime, but he targeted uh, the rupture of social bonds, those bonds that integrate you into the society, uh, which are not just about work, but work is important. And John Paul II actually wrote a very fine encyclical about the importance of work and how work is not just about uh, exchanging labor for a wage, uh, but about the uh, dignity, about a sense of place uh, about a sense of meaning, uh, and John Paul even argues that it's about the cohesiveness of family because, uh, it is, it's about the, the ability for a family as a unit, uh, to live, uh, and to sustain itself, uh, in a society. Uh, and all of that goes, um, uh, with deindustrialization. Uh, so th- I think the reason we see such a strong kind of crypto fascist movement, uh, which was first embodied, by the way, in the Christian right. It was before Trump and about a decade ago, and I'm a, I graduated from seminary about a decade ago. Uh, I wrote a book called American Fascist, the Christian right and the war in America. And I didn't use the word fascist lightly. In fact, when I finished the book, I spent several hours with at the time, probably our country's two greatest scholars on fascism, Fritz Stern. Uh, who had taught at Columbia and had uh, fled Germany as a refugee in the 1930s as a teenager. And Robert Paxton, who wrote the book, The Anatomy of Fascism. Um, for Stern wrote the classic book, The Culture of Despair. Uh, I remember Fer- Stern uh, telling me, uh, that in Germany there was a yearning for fascism before the word fascism was invented. Uh, and I think that, uh, that, uh, all of that embodies the Christian Right, which upends the core message of the Christian gospel. Uh, it's about material, the acquisition of material wealth and power. That's an anathema of the gospel. Uh, it acculturates or sacralizes the worst aspects of American imperialism, capitalism, and white supremacy. I mean, the whole notion that America is anointed uh, to uh, bring about the kingdom of God uh, and that the white race is somehow lifted up above other races is, uh, paralleled in the so-called German Christian Church. German Christian Church was set up in the 1930s by the Nazis, uh, and it was, uh, again about sacralizing fascism and state power. I, when I, I went to Harvard Divinity School, and my great uh, mentor at Harvard uh, was the scholar james Luther Adams Adams had been at the University of Heidelberg in uh, 1936, 35 and thirty six I believe uh and uh, he'd actually been in a lecture hall watching Heidegger give the fascist salute before he began his lectures um and he started working with the underground so called confessing church this was run by Martin Niemöller, Bonhoeffer uh, was eventually killed by the Nazis, was part of this, Albert Schweitzer, Karl Barth, and others. Um, And uh, I remember Adams, this was in the early 80s, when we were students, uh, and the Christian right was not a powerful force, it was a marginal force, but he immediately uh, labeled these people as Christian fascists and saw the danger that they posed, especially as a working class was dispossessed. Um, and I think even at the time, although he was certainly one of the most brilliant scholars I studied with, we found his uh, analysis perhaps a bit hyperbolic, a bit overheated. But when I came back 20 years later and I had watched how the Christian right had built parallel institutions like Liberty University, Patrick Henry Law School, its own media system, uh, it's Christian schools, which Betsy DeVos, of course, spent four years of the Trump administration uh, federally funding. Uh, I, I saw that Adams uh, had seen something that we hadn't seen, and these people were all integrated into the Trump administration. That's where Pence comes from, uh, and Trump really played to this. Uh, I, I think that these people, uh, who uh, and it's, it's magical thinking, of course, these people have essentially retreated from the real world. And what was interesting when I wrote my book was how uh, when I interviewed members of the Christian right, um, and I went there with a kind of liberal prejudice. My father was a minister, but came out of the social gospel and uh, the Barragans and was involved in the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, and the gay rights movement. Um, I went in there with a kind of prejudice towards them, but you, you know, you couldn't listen to what they had went through without uh, feeling a great deal of empathy for their suffering, which was real, the domestic and sexual abuse, the struggle with addictions, alcoholism, gambling, the uh constant, as Barbara Ehrenreich says, that being poor in America is one long emergency. Uh, that certainly typified their lives. And they retreated into, this is what anthropologists will call crisis cults, they retreated into this uh, magical world where Jesus would take care of them, uh and uh and minister to their uh their physical needs in terms of blessing them with wealth. But this is always a very pernicious ideology because what it really says is that those who are poor uh are poor because they deserve to be poor. And that's why you have uh many corporations Tyson Foods and uh all sorts of corporations funding the Christian right. Uh, not because they particularly embrace the magical thinking, but because the ideology that comes with it is so uh, conducive to laissez-faire capitalism, to the lifting of regulations. You don't need labor unions. You don't need health care if Jesus is going to take care of you. Um, and just on that one point before I get into Trump, uh, we, I certainly came away from that experience. I spent two years on that book believing that you couldn't argue these people. There was no rational way to argue these people back into reality. Um, I had been in Detroit for the book uh, with Tim LaHaye, wrote the End Time series, and uh, they were talking about the coming uh, Armageddon and apocalypse and uh, these blood-curdling descriptions of what would happen to non-believers, including Jews. That's why the alliance with the Christian right in Israel has always so mystified me. Um, uh, and the, and the excitement within this, uh, it was in a church, a large church within this gathering. Uh, and I think I really came to understand it's only really when you sit through those, uh, experiences that you can, I think, fathom what they're about. I came to see that, uh, these people really wanted that secular humanist world as they describe it destroyed uh and looked forward to that moment because uh it uh destroyed all of those forces uh that had almost destroyed them uh and i at the end of the book really came to the conclusion that unless these people were reintegrated in particularly economically back into the society there was no hope for uh the the protection uh of american democracy And of course, things have gotten exponentially worse with the levels of social inequality being unlike anything we've seen in American history. Um, That dislocation, those rupturing of social bonds play out in self-destructive behaviors, uh, Durkheim argues. And so my last book, America, The Farewell Tour, looked at all of those self-destructive pathologies that have gripped Huge segments of the population, the opioid crisis, I was with heroin addicts, the sexual sadism, we're a pornified culture, uh, but it's, it's, uh, that, uh, porn is violent, usually, uh, it includes torture. I was at a place called kink.com, which is the largest BDSM operation, uh, in the world, I think, uh, <clears throat> where people can pay money, of uh, live stream into these, Sessions and women are literally waterboarded. I mean, uh, I spent time with the three percenters, and, uh, Knights of the All Right and some of these, uh, proud boys, uh, because as Durkheim argues, those who seek the annihilation of others are driven by longings for self-annihilation. Um, uh, gamblers, I wrote my chapter on gambling out of the Trump Taj Mahal before Trump announced Uh, and, and this is that deep social sickness which feeds these proto-fascist movements, uh, that predated Trump, uh, and that are still with us. Uh, and I think extremely frightening and dangerous. They just, you just saw uh, Cheney removed from her position, uh, which I think, uh, although Trump's platform has been removed, he's been removed from social media. Uh, these, uh, This deep alienation and these kinds of antagonism have, have not left us. Uh, and what I fear is that with the cementing into place of the corporate state, there's no way within the American political system to vote against the interests of Goldman Sachs. Uh, the longer that dispossession continues, uh, the more danger our anemic uh, democracy is in. Uh, Biden... Um, was anointed or appointed however you want it by the Democratic donor elite uh, because he has long served their interests. Indeed, Obama chose Biden as the vice president, his vice presidential candidate, because Biden, in essence, voted Republican. Um, he comes out of Delaware. His nickname used to be Senator Credit Card. Uh, he's been involved in the worst aspects of the assault on civil liberties. He was one of the primary authors of the Patriot Act, uh, again, NAFTA, as i mentioned uh, mass incarceration, militarized police deregulation that 's all biden um, and uh, he I, I think the Democratic Party realizes uh there 's a crisis, um, but they 're limited by their fealty to corporate power so when Biden uh, provo- proposes the care act the ARP if you look at it closely. That money is going either to states or corporations. Yes, there's a one-time check of $1,400. There's an extension of unemployment benefits. There's a child, child tax credit. But structurally, it doesn't do anything to alter the unfairness of the system. And in most cases, by the end of this year, uh, that money will have run out. $1,400 really isn't going to deal much when you have millions of Americans behind on their rent, uh, credit card companies, you know, waiting to snap up that money. Uh, medical, uh, for-profit insurance companies, uh, landlords, et cetera. So, uh, the inability to deal, and then on the infrastructure issue, uh, again, this is another version of trickle-down economics. You will fund large infrastructure companies and, um, uh, and, and you're not recreating, uh, the kind of, uh, policies that were embraced by FDR during the New Deal when the federal government literally put twelve million Americans to work, created Social Security, uh, lifted the bans on labor unions so people could uh organize. Uh and uh if we don't have those kinds of structural issues, uh then I think even by the midterms uh we will see, and traditionally this is what happens, uh, the uh, Republican Party, which I think is a crypto, this, at this point, a kind of crypto fascist party, my friend Glenn Ford calls it the white man's party, um, uh, retake power. I mean, even with Biden's tax credits, he's not uh, bringing them back to, he, he he's, uh, they're not even reaching the levels uh, before Trump slashed them. And if you go back to the Reagan administration, uh, the highest uh, percentage of Wage earners and corporations were taxed at 40%. And if you want to go back to the Eisenhower administration, because of the legacy of the New Deal, they were taxed, attacked, uh, sorry, they were uh, taxed at 91%. Um, we see with the current, uh, uh assaults by Israel against the Palestinians, um, uh, complete lockstep, uh, by Biden, uh, which is true, of course, with the funding of the military. Uh, over $750 billion. Uh, Biden has in, in his proposed budget has increased this by 1.6%, about $11 billion. When in fact, of course, the military budget needs to be dramatically, uh, reduced and resources need to be, uh, uh, reconfigured to address the deep social, uh, malaise that has gripped the United States. Uh, Ralph always calls these corporations traitorous or traitors uh, because they are supranational. Um, they have no real loyalty to the nation state. Uh, their lobbyists have, in essence, uh, orchestrated a tax boycott. That's how uh, companies like Amazon don't pay any federal taxes. In fact, they got money back from the federal government in their last tax season. Um, and, and that concentration of wealth is also unlike anything we've ever seen. So when when John D. Rockefeller died, he actually spoke at my went to prep school, a scholarship student. He was my high school graduation speaker. Uh, when he died, he was worth about three billion dollars. Even the worst kind of uh, corrupt, uh, authoritarian or dictatorial rulers around the world didn't amass anything like the money Bezos is worth. About 180. Billion dollars, that, and that's going up. Uh, Elon Musk is about the same. Uh, Bill Gates isn't far behind. Uh, but uh, I think Amelda and Fernand Marcos were estimated to have stolen between, uh, 10 and 20 billion, uh, Mobutu in and the Congo, maybe over his reign, 10 billion. Uh, but the concentration of wealth is really not uh, it is no precedent within uh, human history. I mean, certainly in 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 recent human history uh, and that uh, um, concentration of wealth by a rapacious tiny elite and the inability on the part of the citizenry in our system of legalized bribery um, to essentially have any kind of organized power to thwart it is pushing us closer and closer to the um, to the kinds of eruptions that we all saw on January 6th um, uh, uh you know to blame that on Trump uh i think misses the point he, to blame uh you know what the 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 uh, racist crypto fascist anti democratic uh, uh white uh, almost 75 million people uh you know, white working class on Trump is to miss the point. First of all, it, as I said before, it predated Trump. Uh, but uh Trump tapped into what was already there. Um he is or was the uh symptom. He's not the disease. And and what frightens me about the Democratic Party, its inability to address the disease. Uh the whole notion that Trump uh, won in 2016 because of Russia uh, is ridiculous. Um, first of all, the country that interferes most aggressively in the American electoral process is Israel, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, I mean, you had uh, Netanyahu show up uh, I think it was 2015 and uh, at, invited by uh, Boehner and the Republicans to address the Congress and denounce uh, Barack Obama's uh, Iranian nuclear deal. I mean, this is just uh, staggering. Um, uh, and then of course all the junkets and all the congress people that are flown to Israel. And I think again, we see, uh, how little daylight there is on what's happening in, in, uh, in Israel and in Palestine at the moment. Uh, uh, so the, the problem is that we're not addressing the gross disfigurations that have been caused by corporate power um and for me, the Biden administration is a kind of short reprieve uh and uh, my fear is that they will their legacy will be that they cement into place uh perhaps a competent uh demagogue uh I mean what saved us in many ways was the incompetence of trump, this short attention span and uh, you know, uh, he was unable to really organize. He, he certainly wanted to carry out a coup, uh, but he didn't have the organizational, uh, uh, ability or infrastructure to make it succeed, but he certainly tried. Um, but that may not be true for a Mike Pompeo or a Tom Cotton. I don't know who's coming next. Maybe somebody we don't know. And we can't rule out the fact that Trump may, you know, rise like the Phoenix. Uh, uh, so, the, uh, the, the corporate coup d'etat has, um, struck deep at the roots of American democracy and American society. And, uh, my fear with the Democratic party and the Democratic leadership is that they're dealing cosmetically, largely, with a problem that's systemic. Uh, and unless that corporate coup d'etat is reversed, um we certainly have built now within the state uh machinery uh systems of almost instantaneous dictatorial power including wholesale surveillance uh the revoking of habeas corpus and due process um the use of anti-terrorism laws against uh domestic critics they've already used it against environmental activists and even against uh animal rights activists, um, the uh, censorship that Silicon Valley can impose because they have a monopoly on the uh, uh, systems of information. For instance, you saw it in the campaign when the New York Post was locked out of its own Twitter account because it had reported on the contents of Hunter Biden's uh, laptop uh left-wing kind of uh anti-imperialist anti-capitalist critics like myself have been hit now with algorithms that's not conjecture uh i wrote for 16 years for a left-wing site called truth dig it's now shut down we all went on strike uh to protest the attempt by the publisher to fire the editor-in-chief bob Shear, and then we were all fired which kind of gives you a window into the hollowness of american liberal class uh, unions are good for everyone else, but not for us. Um, we wanted to form a union to protect ourselves and protect Bob. Um, but that last uh, year, they did a uh, they, the the IT people did a graph, uh, and they uh, followed impressions. So impressions are like when you go into Google, if you typed in the word imperialism, and I had written a column on imperialism along with anything else that was recent, it would come up. Well, that gets erased by the algorithm. So you're not referred to that article or that site. So the referrals from impressions, according to that graph, over the last 12 months had fallen from over 700,000 to well below 200,000, probably even lower now as the algorithms are protected, uh, that the, all of this, these mechanisms were used to shut down WikiLeaks. I'm a strong supporter of Julian Assange, and indeed he's a friend of mine. And visited him when he was in the Ecuadorian Embassy in London. Uh, but there you had, it was really pioneered against WikiLeaks. So uh, Julian was locked out of all of his credit card and bank accounts. Uh, it became impossible to donate to WikiLeaks uh, because all of the servers that would handle donations were shut down. Um, and then when WikiLeaks posted material or hosted events, there was heavy electronic interference. So People couldn't see it or hear it or get into uh, the events. Um, and uh, we are certainly seeing uh, uh, this kind of creeping authoritarianism that in the hands of uh, a competent demagogue uh, uh, and uh, coupled with the refusal on the part of the state to address the core issues that push people into the embrace of the Christian right, the embrace of magical thinking, uh, or and this, of course, all demagogues peddle magical thinking. Indeed, Hannah Arendt, in Origins of Totalitarianism, argues that totalitarianism itself is always a form of magical thinking. Um, my hope is, is, such as it is, is that we will reclaim the kind of militancy that we saw in the 1930s um I think uh you know too often uh, when history is presented it's about the beneficence of great white men uh roosevelt uh his first term did very little to deal with the impression uh but the social upheaval was such you had the famous sit down strikes in Flint that crippled g m and then uh, uh led to the entire country's automotive industry becoming uh unionized you had hunger marches you had organizations within cities like Chicago so that when they went in to do evictions uh people organized to physically block uh the sheriff's departments from evicting uh families um uh, and roosevelt in his private correspondence which i've read you know, which was published after he died um uh, sends a letter to his brother and says quite openly if if we don't respond we will get revolution and you still had the specter of the russian revolution uh, hanging over industrialized uh, countries. Uh, and I think that Roosevelt was right. Uh, and I think we are moving towards a period in American history uh, that, again, replicates that kind of extremism. Um, that extremism was part of Weimar, uh, although the difference being, of course, you had the reparations, and you had the uh effects of the war the 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 huge losses caused by the war um, but the, you know history doesn't uh, uh repeat itself but it rhymes i think that's what mark twain said um, and what you had by the 1930s the end of the 1930s in weimar was the international banking system imposing uh uh in essence, austerity uh, for bank loans. So you had a social, a liberal government, social democratic government uh, um, uh, banishing unemployment insurance at a, at a time of massive unemployment. And so this really fed the fascist movement. In 1928, the Nazi party pulled in the single digits. Uh, by 1930, they were on the cusp of achieving power. Um so uh I think the problems that are gripping us are severe and frightening. Uh and I worry that the ruling elites, whether through uh a lack of understanding or a lack of will, uh are not responding and the consequences for American democracy are um catastrophic. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Um we have an awful lot of questions to get through uh in about fifteen minutes, so I'm jumping right into them. Um, First one, how do you deal with deindustrialization when technology has changed the landscape?
1: Well, technology hasn't really changed the landscape. I mean, you have 700,000 people working for subsidiaries of Apple in China alone. Um, things still have to be made. the textile industry, uh, cars. I mean I when I my last book, I was in Anderson, Indiana, Anderson was one of the big cities that produced GM cars. Uh, after NAFTA, they moved down to Monterey, Mexico, where they pay workers three dollars an hour without benefits. That city has fallen into the traditional tailspin of deindustrialized cities, including explosion of the opioid crisis. Uh, supermarkets are boarded up, churches are boarded up, houses are abandoned, uh, and things still have to be made. Uh, and the fallacy of those people who promoted neoliberalism and deindustrialization is that America would somehow become a high tech, a producer of high tech. Um, no, the producer of high tech is not in America, it's in China, uh, or Vietnam, or, you know, our clothes are made in Bangladesh. Uh, So uh, high tech still needs intensive labor, uh, but it's not here. It's overseas.
0: Um, Another question in a different direction. Do you see the gamification of the securities markets as evidenced by Reddit? An example of the self-destruction impulse to gambling.
1: Well, that's all the market is, is gambling at this point. Are things, you know, it's like commodities. Are things going to rise? I bet they are. No, they're not. You sell short, you sell long. It's not investment. And one of the, I think, disturbing things about the bailout of 2008 is that money didn't go into producing. They didn't produce anything. They didn't make anything. Uh, it went back to. Largely to stock buybacks because CEO compensation was tied to it. So that whole casino capitalism uh, is is a form of gambling for the rich. Uh, and to somehow measure the health of the economy by the stock market is ridiculous. It, it's 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 uh, it's also a big uh, you know bubble machine. So it's why you get these periodic. Uh, uh dot com crash the 2008 crash um, you know they just become kind of cyclical uh but they're divorced from the real economy
0: um, what is your take on corporations weighing in on and exerting significant influence over social justice issues such as Anti-gay rights measures in Indiana during Pence's governorship and recent voting restrictions passed in Georgia.
1: Well, corporations are very slow to respond to the voting restrictions. Uh, it's just branding. Uh, go back to um, you know Calvin Klein and Bennington during the AIDS crisis. They were putting HIV-positive models up on their billboards because it was kind of edgy. Uh, but in the end, they're just consumers. Uh, and I think it, it it, along with kind of the woke culture and political correctness, and uh, it, it is a way of diverting people's attention from the class warfare that's being waged by the elite against the rest of us. So, yeah, corporations are quite happy to embrace the notion of diversity uh, as long as those people who are selected, and they are selected, both within academia and the corporate world serve those systems of power. And my favorite story about this is I went, when I went to, I went to Harvard divinity school and uh, before, right before I got there, there were no professors. There were no black professors at Harvard divinity school and the black students occupied the Dean's office and demanded that they conduct a search. So they invited three black academics to apply, one of which was James Cone, which if you know anything about theology, James Cone uh, was the most important theologian in America since Reinhold Niebuhr. I mean, the, he was the father of Black liberation theology, stunningly brilliant. Um, and then they invited a sociologist, again, a very competent academic, uh, Lincoln was his name. Uh, and then they invited the third candidate who was a young uh, professor who uh, just had his, gotten his PhD and never written a book. But what did they do? Well, they hired the young professor who uh, ended up getting tenure and was there when I was there and never ended up writing a book ever. I don't think he's ever written a book. Uh, so we have to remember that within those structures, it's that white ruling elite that selects who it is. I mean, you know, within theological circles, the notion that you wouldn't hire James Cone should have been a huge embarrassment to Harvard. Uh, not that Harvard has the capacity to be embarrassed, uh, but there, you know, those figures. I mean, that's why Cornell West called Barack Obama black mascot for Wall Street. Obama was a product of the Chicago political machine, a close ally of Daley. Uh, there was all that exposure when Obama was a state senator of torture, horrific acts of torture uh, by the Chicago police under Burge, and. Uh Obama never said a word. Uh there were all these uh exposures uh in, in Illinois of people who had been falsely convicted uh and sent to death row. Obama never came out against the death penalty. Uh you know, he he was he was selected in a way that um, you know, somebody who was willing to stand up against corporate power in a real way was pushed out. I knew George McGovern. McGovern was one of the last, I and mean, a lot of it's taken on the military-industrial complex, which even Bernie Sanders wasn't foolish enough to do, but McGovern did, a uh, highly decorated World War II veteran, he'd been a bomber pilot, um, uh, and they destroyed him, uh, and they destroyed him the same way they would have destroyed Sanders. Uh, you had the Democratic Party elite and the Republican Party elite joining together uh, to take down McGovern. Uh, and that was made clear by the donor class in the Democratic Party. So Lloyd Blankfein, for example, the former CEO of Goldman Sachs, said that if Sanders was the nominee, he'd vote for Trump. And he was expressing, I think, the majoritarian opinion, that there was no way they were going to allow Sanders to be the nominee. I don't think Sanders ever had any chance to be the nominee. Uh, so, th- you know, why was Trump removed? Well, I mean, for all the obvious reasons, he was vulgar and inept and embarrassment to the empire but his actual policies didn't alienate corporate america in the same way that biden who was quite clear in the campaign that he wouldn't uh touch the structures of corporate power um which is why by the end you know biden was getting tremendous amounts of money especially from silicon valley that had formed super PACs and were putting all these anti-trump ads
0: um, the questions are pouring in. We have uh, six minutes left. I'm going to try to batch these together a little bit. Of that McGovern reference is a nice lead into this question. Given the end of conscription and the advent of the voluntary army in 1973, do you see any hope of reviving the American peace movement? And dismantling the military complex.
1: Well, that's a really good question because they knew that if it was a volunteer army, well, who volunteers? It's those people in economic distress. My half of my family comes from working class towns in Maine. All of them are veterans uh, because there's nowhere else for them to go. Um, so you have, uh, you know, I don't know what the actual percentage is—two, three, four percent. Of the population essentially servicing the military, which is also true now at West Point. My son was a college athlete. He used to compete at West Point, so I would go there. And it was interesting that, uh, you know, the sons and daughters of the elites no longer attend West Point at all. That might have, was probably not true a few decades ago. Uh, and then of course you have the rise of mercenary armies. I mean, we, we have thousands. I don't know what the final figure is right now in Afghanistan uh and they're just completely erased from public perception uh even though they are functioning as highly paid troops um, so i think that's uh the empire realized that uh i mean if people were being drafted and middle class kids were dying in the folly that has been taking place for two decades in the middle east there would have been more reaction uh but as long as it's the poor um, they have neither the organizational capacity or um, enough political clout to do much other than come back and uh, suffer with PTSD. And, uh, you know, that's why the suicide rate among veterans is so high. Um, and that kind of despair to come back to these empty towns that my own family comes from in Maine where all the mills are closed and the town where my grandparents were from, even the bank is boarded up. Uh But that's, you know, that's kind of across the United States. So yes, I think that ending conscription was a very conscious and perhaps even a astute move on the architects of empire, from the architects of empire, because it was when middle class kids came home in the Vietnam War in body bags that you saw a real turn on the military establishment. Uh, here's
0: a question that I think is on more than one person's mind. Accepting your terrifying view of where we are, what practical steps can or should we take?
1: It's a, it's, as history has pointed out, it's, it's, uh, it's organized, sustained mass civil disobedience. I mean, that's what brought us the New Deal. Uh, that's what ended the Vietnam War. That's what gave us at least legally, not economically, civil rights. Uh, that's what uh, ended slavery. Uh, that's what gave women the vote. Um, there's nothing surprising about it, um, but we have a mass media that uh, works quite effectively at neutralizing the population, either through entertainment or limiting actual debate. Uh, I see the whole kind of focus on uh, the woke culture and cancel culture as uh, just empty kind of moralizing, not that I'm opposed to, uh, that, but that, that it easily fits within, uh, corporate culture. I mean, go back and look at the old Soviet Union, especially right after the revolution, they had much the same kind of moralizing as a diversion away from the Bolshevik seizure of complete and total state power. So, um, uh, it's not a mystery. I mean, Howard Zinn and People's History of the United States, I think, chronicled quite well, number one, that America was formed as a closed system, largely by white slave-holding men, uh, and that all of the openings in American democracy came through mass movements. And and if we don't recover those mass movements, uh, and, and as we did in the 1930s, then we will go the way Europe went, or countries like Italy and uh, Germany went in the 1930s will go the other way.
0: I want to make a little distinction when you're talking about mass civil disobedience. What would you uh, how would you uh, evaluate the prospect of a third party? Do you see a need for a third political party or was that included when you talked about um, things that we could do to reverse the trend?
1: Well, I was Ralph Nader's speechwriter, so I certainly support third parties on the other hand i 'm acutely aware of all of the obstacles the Democratic and Republican parties put up to third party candidates. Um, you know, Ralph never appeared on the debates, um, which was probably who'd want to debate Ralph, not me. Um, uh, the Democratic Party, which was really frightened by Ralph after two thousand uh, made war on Ralph after that, so they were challenging his voter list, which. Uh, the consequence was about a million dollars in legal fees. There was nothing wrong with the voter list. It was just a way to drive up his legal costs. Um, And then the whole demonization of Nader that he lost Florida. I mean, by the way, Gore now says that he won Florida, which he did. They stopped the counting in Florida after two counties, moved it to the Supreme Court, and you had Bush appointed president by judicial fiat with no legal precedent at all. Uh, but the, you know, the, the ruling Democratic elites and their echo chambers and the mass media uh, really did turn Ralph into a pariah. So uh, I I support the Greens, uh, I support the third party movement, uh, but without serious mass mobilization, it's just kind of a protest mode. It, it doesn't, It's it's in and of itself not going to change the system. It's 3
0: o'clock. I'm just going to wrap up here. We could go on and on, and I'm sorry, but uh, this is our time. Unless there's something that you wanted to sum up with as we end the talk.
1: No, I I mean, I'm now, I was the Middle East Bureau Chief for the New York Times, so I'm very involved in what's happening now in, the Middle, in Israel um, and quite upset by it. As an Arabic speaker and somebody who spent weeks of my life in Gaza and the inability on the part of the ruling elites in either party to respond uh, to, you know, these grotesque assaults by Israel on a defenseless population, in particular in Gaza, little girl's largest open air prison. So it's kind of where my energy has been going the last couple of days. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm glad we could give you a platform to get that message out. And I'm very grateful for the time that you've given us. Um, Thank you very much. Okay. And uh, we're going to leave it there.
1: Okay. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. Bye.
1: Super blue, extension, rebellion.